Beast Watch News, watching the rising beast of Revelation. There's big news in the U.S. this week with Donald Trump announcing his re-election bid for the presidency in 2020. Israel's elections are heating up to the point that some careers may end. I'll continue looking at the religion versus state issue in Israel along with some Russians' involvement in the elections. The U.S. and Iran continue their escalation toward war. Hear what Russia had to say to the U.S. this week and find out what is anticipated for the Israel-U.S.-Russia security meeting next week in Israel. There will be some news about the Trump peace plan, too. These stories and my comments are forthcoming, but before the news begins, I have a point to make so that you will understand why I concentrate on some issues in the news and not others. The Jerusalem report focuses on the two end times players and their leaders, the United States of America end times Babylon headquarters and Israel and their leaders the US president and the Israeli prime minister at the moment these are Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu these are the critical nations and their leaders that must fulfill prophecies leading up to the great tribulation and the arrival of our king of kings and lord of lords Yeshua the Messiah Some may have wondered why I don't report news from other nations such as South Africa where critical conditions that point to the coming global upheaval don't make it into the weekly Jerusalem report broadcast and where once I reported a lot of U.S. and global economic news even following European political upheavals that is no longer the case by the wayside has gone reporting on unexplained phenomena such as UFOs, government leaks from men like Julian Assange and Edward Snowden, and watching for the enforcement of martial law in the U.S. that we know will happen during the end of days, along with earthquake, dangerous weather, and anomalous animal deaths and their critical decreasing populations. The fact is that the increase in the details of the two major areas of Bible prophecy, war, and Antichrist have increased exponentially to the point that I can't fit everything in. However, the website does continue to carry these stories, so be sure to check the headlines on the right side often. The Jerusalem report, by necessity, is now concentrated on the House of Israel and the House of Judah's struggles as they move toward the end game. I have often pointed out how the U.S. and Israel's problems seem to parallel each other. From border problems to the political scandals of Trump and Netanyahu, to war with the same enemy, to drawing together toward a peace deal that I believe will start a war, the Gog Magog War in the West Bank. The U.S. and Israel are moving toward their end-time chastisement from Yahweh and their greatest treasure, His Spirit poured out on them.
The Jerusalem report presents the fluctuations in the politics and social orders of the U.S. and Israel according to the prophecies, not according to what is politically important in the mainstream media. You can get that politics from Fox and CNN. Right now, the sisters are going through elections. These are pivotal elections for both nations. Will Yahweh keep Trump and Netanyahu in their offices? If so, will that mean that our God and King is ready to move forward with fulfilling the end of days and returning to the earth to rule for a millennium? If not, will that mean that Yahweh is delaying Yeshua's return? We can only wait and see, but it is the watching, not the knowing, that we are called to do. Yes, Yahweh shares with his prophets his plans, but he never provides all the details of how he intends his plan to work. Why is that? It is because he has called us to watch and sound the alarm when we see danger coming. He wants us to be focused on the coming kingdom from moment to moment, doing what will bring the harvest in for the kingdom, rather than wasting our time nonchalantly as some would, or frantically preparing as others would. Neither of these activities forward the return of the kingdom. However, our continual watching does, especially when we sound the alarm and those that hear the alarm take action to repent and begin living as law-abiding, Torah-keeping citizens of the kingdom of Israel. There are two wars that are more important in their approach than either of the elections the Gog Magog and King of the North Wars. However, we will first look at the Israeli election in which the Jews are struggling over the separation of rabbinic halakha and state, the Jewish version of separation of church and state, and also understand why Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is in the fight of his political career, a fight that could end his time in office. The outcome of Israel's September elections will open the door for the appearance of the Antichrist. This will be true whether or not Israel becomes a religious state. Let me explain. If the Haredi lose, expect them to rise up to show their strength in Israel by bringing forward the Jewish Messiah that will enforce the religious state on those who don't want it. They can do this if they choose because the religious rabbinate has more control in Israel than is suspected by many people. Or if they win, the Haredi will not hesitate to solidify Israel's religious state status by introducing their Jewish Messiah to the world. Either way, and whether I am right or wrong, the Jewish Messiah is coming. But in the meantime, Israelis are fighting over religion versus state. And that's my Prophecy Focus announcement for this week. Haaretz op-ed reported that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu recently tweeted a promise that Israel would not be a state of Jewish law. The public doesn't believe him, 
Avigdor Lieberman doesn't believe him either. In Israel, there's a clear trend of an increasing presence of religion and religious coercion in matters such as marriage, divorce, conversion, burial, Shabbat observance, the exclusion of women and gender segregation. All these things have been increasing under Netanyahu, who forged an alliance with the ultra-Orthodox. And this trend relies entirely on the political power of the religious community and on Likud's surrender to its partners in the governing coalition. And Lieberman has now said he and his Yisrael Beitenu party would only join a national unity government of Likud and blue and white without the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox parties, and their far-right Otsma Yehudit party in a statement made last Saturday night. Because blue and white leader Benny Gantz would only take his party into a government led by anyone in Likud other than Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Lieberman's promise was seen as an attempt to oust him. The significance of his threat is that if the right does not end up winning 61 seats without Yisrael Beitenu, Netanyahu's career could be over. Even if the Union of Right-Wing Parties ultimately receives the education and transportation portfolios, ministerial appointments are just a small part of a much deeper process that includes draft exemptions for the Haredim, larger budgets for yeshivot and rabbis, and strengthening the rabbinates and the orthodox establishment's monopoly on matters including kashrut, shabbat, and conversion. Some in Israel believe the rabbinate is weakening, not strengthening, in the areas of governing public spaces, culture, and the media. Free and liberal Israel is winning, to the delight of the large and free segment of Israelis who wish to live normal lives without coercion, discrimination, or segregation. Two examples of the weakening of the Haredi in the secular viewpoint are, first, the Eurovision final was held in Tel Aviv on a Saturday night after Shabbat was over, but the staging of the entire competition entailed a tremendous amount of Shabbat violations, and, second, this month brought the Jerusalem Gay Pride Parade into the heart of the Holy City. Tens of thousands of people took part, and the event enjoyed broad public support. These are two important events that drew extensive media coverage and were much discussed. For the most part, the Haredim chose to keep quiet and shun large protests and threats. They chose restraint, which makes one wonder how the Haredim, who can bring an entire country to a standstill over the transport of a transformer for the electric company on Shabbat, could remain silent amid what they consider to be abominations. The Eurovision production involved major violations of the sanctity of Shabbat, and the Gay Pride Parade is viewed by the Haredim as an abomination. What happened in these instances was something else. Haredi surrender. It was a marking of the limits of the Haredim's power and evidence that even now 
a time of success at the polls and euphoria and confidence in the religious community, they realized their limitations and fear the power of free culture to penetrate their world. Here's my opinion. It is a mistake for secular Jews to think the Haredim are weakening. They may simply be biding their time in this heightened time of division between non-religious, non-Orthodox Jews and Orthodox Jews. If the non-Orthodox fail to overturn the Netanyahu coalition in September, Israel may be in for much more upheaval than they are having right now. Returning to the Haaretz article, the coalition structure of government in Israel combined with Likud's willingness to surrender to Haredi demands gives them disproportionate power over legislation, the running of government ministries, the military draft, and the budget. But they can't obscure the fact that in Israeli society, a majority still exists unwilling to live in a state governed by religious law. This majority, which hasn't successfully converted its numbers into political power, can still make itself felt in the street, in the free market, and in culture and leisure activity. Here, says this article, we still have power, the power we lack in the Knesset. Avigdor Lieberman may have begun to grasp this. In Israel as a whole, not just among immigrants from the former Soviet Union, there is a majority against closing down the country on Shabbat, against discrimination against women and the LGBT community, against religious coercion and exemptions for Haredi young men regarding the draft and the job market. Neither religious nor non-religious Jews obey the law of Moses. While religious Jews appear to obey the Sabbath, the truth is that they have added to the Torah to the tune of millions of laws on the Sabbath alone. The Shulchan Aruch in a th- is a three-volume set of laws governing the Sabbath, laws that range from how to close a refrigerator door when the light was not turned off before the Sabbath started, to how to pick your nose, to an injunction against brushing your hair. Israel is seeing and showing the world the problem with religion in this election and the reason Yeshua must return to rule as king. His kingdom is not religious. Yahweh did not create a religion. He created a nation from people he selected from among all the peoples of the earth. His is a nation of laws as given in the Torah. Simple laws that are easy, not difficult, and that are designed to show His character and conform our character to His. The religious controversy, no matter its outcome, will shape Israel's future in ways that are difficult to imagine in their fullness.
The Herodim, for their part, are planning a pushback to Lieberman to tell the Israeli public about their cooperation with Lieberman and demonstrate that despite his attacks, he has helped and supported the Haredi factions for years. Lieberman is picking a fight with the Haredim, one official of a Haredi faction told Israel Hayom last Sunday. We won't give him one. He wants us to attack him, to drag the discourse to the issues of supermarkets opening on Shabbat and all those other disputes. He wants to become a sort of defender of the secular against the Haredim. But Lieberman is a liar. All these years, he has worked with the Haredim on a lot of issues. He is lying to his public, and we'll expose that, the official said. The Haredi factions claim that Lieberman cooperated with the Haredim on a number of legislative initiatives, and one Haredi official even described Lieberman as a friend. He worked with us against secular mayoral candidate Ofer Berkovich in Jerusalem and on a lot of other projects. When necessary, he also knew enough to join a government that said it would not promote civil marriage. With him, it's all talk, the Haredi official said. Now, let's take a look at Russia as a player in Israel's election. For as much as Russia interfered in U.S. election, Russia is doing the same in Israel except with this caveat. Russia, or at least Russian Jews, have been invited into the Israeli elections. Almonitor.com reports that Prime Minister Netanyahu's son Yair tweeted on May 29th, My brothers from the Soviet Union, Lieberman is spitting on you. The Likud is your home. What appeared to be an off-handed and inappropriate tweet looks now to be just the beginning. About a week ago, Netanyahu appointed Likud Central Committee member attorney Ariel Bolshtin as his special advisor on Russian immigrants. Avigdor Lieberman derided the appointment, claiming that Netanyahu is in a state of hysteria from all the pressure. In response, the Likud party released statements and posted on social media in the Russian language. Coalition coordinator Mickey Zohar of the Likud told All Monitor that the Likud's election campaign in the Russian sector will start soon and that it is quite possible a prominent Russian-speaking Israeli will join the party. Immigrants who arrived from the former Soviet bloc countries make up a wise, intelligent community, he said. They know that what really matters is who becomes prime minister and not some party or other. Lieberman moved to the left while we were working to make sure that Benjamin Netanyahu will be prime minister. He is very popular among Russian speakers, so I am sure that they will make the right decision and come over to us. Our party already has quite a few representatives of this community, such as Knesset Speaker Yuli Edelstein and Minister Ziv Elkin, and it is possible that one or even two more will join us. So it's not the Russian government that Likud wants, but the Russian Jews that Israel's rabbinate has been sidelining for years. Before we leave this discussion of Israel, 
Here is one of Netanyahu's latest successes in his steps forward in Golan and the West Bank. Welcome to Trump Heights. Do you remember that town that Trump was to receive in his name in Golan in exchange for obtaining oil drilling rights from Israel? Well, here is how this turned out so far. In huge gilded letters, what else, on a piece of synthetic lawn, of course, a large sign was erected in the Golan Heights. But in actuality, no new community named for U.S. President Donald Trump was actually established last Sunday in the Golan Heights. JPost.com said the Ramat Trump sign was unveiled on a plot of synthetic grass near the existing community of Kila. Business Insider agrees. Trump Heights does not exist. In a ceremony last Sunday, Netanyahu unveiled the community's sign, complete with interlaced Israeli and U.S. flags, and said the move honored a very great friend of the state of Israel. U.S. Ambassador to Israel David Friedman tweeted on Sunday that this was the first time Israel has dedicated a village to a sitting president since Harry Truman in 1949. Haaretz said Trump Heights is a conceptual decision. There is no funding, there is no planning, there is no location, and there is really no committed decision. Indeed, it is unclear if the community will ever be established. Fox News outright slammed the ceremony and sign as nothing more than a PR stunt. Debkafile had this to say. The new community is planned to be a picturesque hill resort located near Kibbutz Gonen on the 959 route in beautiful natural scenery. It has a view of Mount Hermon in the north and the Hula Valley in the southwest. Unfortunately, Trump Heights is also within easy range of shelling or armed drone attacks from across the border and may tempt Iran and its proxies to repeat the exercise Yemen's Houthi rebels performed last week. They targeted Aba, a Saudi holiday resort in the Asir Mountains overlooking the Red Sea and embedded in the largest wild bird colony in the region. Aba is a favorite summer getaway for privileged Saudi Arabians. Still, the fate of Trump Heights at this time is irrelevant compared with the problems facing the two leaders. And this last statement, my friends, is why I wanted you to know why the Jerusalem report focuses on the U.S. and Israel and their two leaders. I'm not the only one who recognizes where the focus should be. Thank you, Debka. That last statement is right. Both Trump and Netanyahu are facing some real battles ahead, and we will have to wait and see who wins the election wars. Trump, for his part, responded to Netanyahu's gesture on Twitter, Thank you, PM Netanyahu and the State of Israel, for this great honor. And now, Iran and Trump's mission creep. Last week, 
Iran's supreme leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei administered a brazen insult to the United States when he told visiting Japanese PM Shinzo Abe that he did not consider President Donald Trump worthy of an exchange of messages with him. He went on to say that Trump's promise not to seek regime change in Iran was a lie and he did not believe Washington's offer of honest negotiations with Tehran. This week, it looks as if Khamenei is on to something about Donald Trump and his plans for war with Iran. Pentagon sources report that CENTCOM, in line with its responsibility for guaranteeing security and free navigation in Gulf waters, applied for an extra 6,000 U.S. troops for the region, along with more destroyers, submarines, and Patriot air defense batteries. U.S. President Trump pared this down to 1,000 U.S. troops, in addition to the 1,500 he released last month. Also, Debka reported this week that U.S. intelligence learns from a highly credible source that Iran's Revolutionary Guard have completed preparations for a large-scale assault on an important Saudi oil facility within days. On Monday, June 17th, the aides of senior U.S. Congress members were summoned to the White House for a briefing on this intelligence and informed that this time the administration is gearing up for a military response. U.S.-Iranian tensions in the region shot up again after abating for a few days amid spreading talk of a White House decision to resort to U.S. military action against Iran. It appears that the data reaching U.S. intelligence has not named which Saudi oil facility is in Iran's sites for the impending attack, but stressed that it will be a lot more damaging than the previous sabotage operations on six oil tankers. Saudi Arabia has placed all its oil installations, terminals, ports, and oil fields on maximum alert. Now, let's take a look at theories presented by some that the oil tanker attack, which the U.S. blamed on Iran, was actually a U.S. false flag attack. JPost.com scrutinized this theory, saying Iran's press TV claimed that the attack might be part of a false flag that would enable the U.S. to attack Iran. U.S. and allies use incidents like tanker attacks to wage war. I'll have something to say about this in a little bit. In this narrative, the attack on the tankers is similar to the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964 that led to wider U.S. involvement in Vietnam. It is thus linked to a long history of supposed conspiracies and false narratives that were used to push America into war from 1898 to today. Theorists also linked the attack to a U.S. bombing of a Chinese embassy during the war with Serbia in 1999. The theory is that some shadowy groups may want war between the U.S. and Iran. They may be willing to pay both sides to fight each other, one commentator asserted. And part of the theory proposes that oil tankers were purposely sent into the Gulf to provoke Iran.
Trita Parsi retweeted a theory that links the Gulf of Oman incident to the Gulf of Tonkin when U.S. warships were attacked off the coast of North Vietnam. Justin Halpin claims, My dad was on the USS Maddox, the boat that was attacked that started the Vietnam War. He said no one could understand why they were there in the Tonkin Gulf until one officer at breakfast goes, They sent us here to get blown up so they can start a war they really want to start. The difference, as one person pointed out, is that these were tankers using an international shipping lane. And another proposed theory was that it really was an Iranian attack because the Iranians who did it are so smart. They count on lack of public interest of the Trump administration in the U.S. to allow them to get away with it. Ariani Tabatabai noted that if the attack was perpetrated by Iran... It may have been banking precisely on lack of trust in the U.S. She also concluded that when you keep calling wolf, at some point you use, you lose rather, the credibility needed for real solutions. So, are there any good reasons, sane reasons, to believe that the Trump administration perpetrated a false flag attack on the oil tankers besides these conspiracy theories? Aside from it having become an event that allowed for more mission creep, that 1,000 more troops and weapons to the Middle East, let's go to Bloomberg's op-ed from last Thursday for some saner reasoning. Bloomberg suggested the attack could have been a false flag, noting it would benefit the people who want to see the U.S. step up its campaign against Iran and move from an economic war to a military one. Who is likely to have been behind the false flag campaign? Well, this Bloomberg article lists two groups who might benefit from the attacks on the oil tankers. Iran and the United States. According to Bloomberg, if Tehran is attacking tankers leaving the Persian Gulf, it sends a message that transit through the world's most important choke point for global oil flows is not safe without its consent. If Iran is pushed to the brink economically by sanctions, it will not go quietly. Other nations in the region will bear the cost of disruptions to their own oil experts, while America and its allies will have to cope with higher crude prices and disruptions to supplies. There is another group that will benefit from the incident, the people who want to see the U.S. step up its campaign against Iran and move from an economic war to a military one. And there are plenty of those, both in the U.S. and among its allies in the Persian Gulf and wider Middle East regions. The timing of these attacks also raises questions. They come as Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is visiting Tehran with the blessing of Trump. On Wednesday, Abe urged Tehran to avoid conflict at all costs and pledged to do his utmost to ease tensions. The tankers, damaged on Thursday, were carrying cargoes related to Japan.
This would seem very clumsy timing from a country seeing the first tangible signs of any easing of the crippling sanctions imposed by the Americans, but it is absolutely understandable if you're someone whose ultimate goal is to derail any easing of tensions between the two nations and to affect regime change in Tehran. Whoever is behind the attacks is no friend of Iran. This Bloomberg article suggests that the attack was not a U.S. false flag, but a real Iranian attack for the purpose of sending the U.S. a message and also for Iran to have bargaining chips for negotiations with the U.S. in the future. And we have to ask ourselves, is Trump trying to pull a George Bush slash John Bolton style uptick in war? Most certainly he is doing the mission creep by increasing the U.S. presence in the Middle East a little at a time. Is he headed toward the 100,000 troops John Bolton requested? Well, if there are enough attacks with increasing damage requiring increasing troop deployments, then the answer could be yes. The probability that it really was Iran and not the U.S. behind those attacks requires a troop increase in the Middle East. Either way, war is upticking again and the U.S. needs to be careful because Iran does have some surprises in store for the U.S. Four secret assets account for Iran's success in pulling off half a dozen attacks on U.S. allies in the past month, peaking in the sabotage of two oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman last Thursday, June 13th. Before the four attackers were sabotaged on May 12th and 14th outside the UAE port of Fujairah, no intelligence agency, whether American, Gulf Arab, or Israeli, suspected this attack was coming. Intelligence data spoke of Iran activating Shiite militias to attack U.S. military bases near the Syrian-Iraqi border, whereas four of the six hits until now targeted Gulf oil facilities and none aimed at military targets. Tehran managed to keep its plans hidden from the eyes of hostile spy agencies and catch them all by surprise. High professional standards of operation include Iranian Marine and Special Forces units assigned to these attacks were highly proficient. Attaching limpet mines to the hulls of four tankers in May and de detonating them in precise order undetected by U.S. or other forces present in the region called for top military skills. The same applied to the rockets, which were precisely guided to explode at a point close to the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad without damaging the building. It achieved its exact purpose, which was to avoid causing harm while warning the Americans that trouble was ahead. The rockets aimed at Israeli military positions on the Hermon were likewise programmed to be harmless.
The shouts of false flag from liberal pundits or those who dislike Donald Trump may be detrimental to the truth which is that Iran has become a formidable enemy against the U.S., an enemy that Americans should be viewing with seriousness instead of dismissal under the phrase false flag. The article further says the initial attacks caused no casualties and no irreversible damage to the four tankers opposite Fujay report. The next strikes against Saudi oil pipeline pumping stations delayed the flow through the east-west pipeline, but the damage was quickly repaired. However, the June 13th attack on the two supertankers which caught fire in the Gulf of Oman was a dangerous escalation. Whereas Iranian soldiers were caught on video removing an unexploded limpet mine from the Japanese Kokuka Courageous to remove the evidence, witnesses aboard the tanker denied that the explosion was caused by mines and claimed it was caused by flying objects. This incident is under investigation. Military experts maintain that whether it was caused by magnetic mines or a torpedo, the explosives must have been planted by saboteurs on fast boats or mini-submarines, which crept up to the tankers undetected by the U.S., British, or French warships patrolling this key international oil route. So herein lies the new problem with Iran, its precise weaponry. In this Debka article, here's what we learn. All the weapons the Iranians have used hitherto have operated faultlessly, none missing their mark. Debka's military sources note that until now, no one had appreciated that Iran was in possession of a weapons systems capable of hitting a target with only a 1.5 meter margin of error. It was first discovered on Wednesday, June 12th, when Yemeni Houthis rebels fired Iran's new Sumar cruise missile at the southwestern Saudi airport of Aba, directly hitting and destroying the control tower. This incident revealed that Iran had delivered this cruise missile to the Yemen rebels, or components for assembling it, so crossing another red line. The worry, though, in the U.S. and Israel now, is that Tehran may now decide to arm its Lebanese proxy, Hezbollah, with the same precise Sumar cruise missile, which carries half a ton of explosives and has a range of up to 2,500 kilometers. This new brazenness on the part of Iran not only spells trouble for the U.S., but more importantly, it spells trouble for Israel, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia, and other North African nations, and any Sunni Muslim populations that exist within them. Another source of Iran's brazenness could be coming from its recently strained relations with Russia. Perhaps Iran's frustration with Russia's overtures to Israel is the reason it is willing to start a war that would necessarily bring Russia back to its side. 
Russia is not willing to risk losing predominance in Syria and is exactly what would be at stake in the alliance between Russia and Iran if Russia moves too close to alliance with Israel and the U.S. While few expect the advisors meeting this month in Jerusalem to produce immediate results, American and Israeli officials hope that it could prepare the ground for a deal that would further weaken Russian ties to Iran and reduce, if not terminate, Iran's presence in Syria. Among multiple scenarios being bounced around, some analysts believe a possible deal could involve Russia pushing Iran out of Syria, a key U.S. and Israeli demand, in exchange for the lifting of at least some American and European sanctions against Russia and U.S. acceptance of the regime of Syrian President Bashar Assad. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejected a similar Russian proposal last November. The officials also suggest that a recent Russian refusal to sell Iran its most advanced S-400 missile defense system was because it could fuel regional tensions as well as tacit Russian acquiescence to Israeli military strikes against Iranian and Lebanese Shiite militia Hezbollah targets in Syria that could open the door to a potential deal. Iran has denied wanting to acquire the Russian system while Russia has officially demanded that Israel halt its attacks and respect Syrian sovereignty. Bolton's discussions with Israeli National Security Advisor Meir Ben Shabbat and Nikolai Petrushov, head of Russia's Security Council, could not come at a worse moment for Iran. The Islamic Republic is struggling to dampen the effect of harsh U.S. sanctions following the Trump administration's withdrawal last year from the 2015 international agreement that curbed Iran's nuclear program. Analysts Yudi Dekel and Carmit Valenci argued in a report published last month by the Tel Aviv-based Institute for National Security Studies, the INSS, that despite public statements to the contrary, Russia, like Israel, rejects a withdrawal of U.S. forces from Syria. After announcing a complete pullback in February, Trump has since agreed to keep several hundred U.S. troops in the country. Dekel and Valenci said a U.S. withdrawal would strengthen Iran and force Russia to allow Iran to take control of oil fields in the east of the country. Well, Russia may be a mediator in Syria now, and that is questionable, but if it comes to war with Iran, Russia will choose sides. The U.S. will choose Israel's side. Russia will be forced into choosing Iran's. The Al-Monitor article continues, writing in Haaretz, columnist rather Zvi Barel suggested that Russia and Iran differ over the end game in Syria. Russia has no intention of simply returning Syria to Assad's control, Barel said. He added that Russia sees Syria as a base from which to forge closer ties to the Gulf and Egypt. 
Well, neither does Iran want Syria to be sovereignly controlled by Bashar al-Assad. Right now, al-Assad is controlled by the IRGC. Iran won't easily let its influence slip, but would rather have Syria as a vassal, part of its 4 plus 1 coalition. As for Russia wanting to use Syria as a base to forge closer ties to the Gulf nations and Egypt, such has been the case since the 1950s. In 1956, when Egypt's President Nasser went to war with Britain over the Suez Canal, Russia almost went to war with Britain too. And that was going to be a nuclear war including France and Israel. Now back to Al Monitor. A possible litmus test of the potential of the talks between the national security advisors may be whether Russia accedes to an Israeli request not to give Syria full control of the S-300 anti-missile system, the equivalent of the U.S. Patriot batteries, which Moscow has already sold and delivered. Israeli officials have warned their Russian counterparts that once fully controlled by Syrian forces, the S-300 would be a legitimate target. Israel and Russia agreed four years ago to coordinate military actions over Syria in order to avoid accidentally exchanging fire. Israel, however, last year rejected a Russian offer to ensure that Iranian forces would not move within 100 kilometers of the Golan Heights, which were recently recognized as Israeli territory by the U.S. Accepting the Russian offer would have amounted to tacit acceptance of an Iranian presence in Syria. Dekel and Valencia noted in their report that Israeli forces had reduced the number of attacks on Iranian targets in Syria in a bid to improve chances of exploiting Russian-Iranian strains. There is a window of opportunity that allows Israel to try, with Russia and the United States, to formulate and achieve shared interest that it has with the two superpowers, most importantly increasing stability in Syria and instituting governmental reforms in Syria along with reducing Iranian influence there, Dekel and Valencia said. That meeting is scheduled to take place from June 24th to the 26th, 2019. In the meantime, Russia has asked the U.S. to stop provoking Iran. The way Russia sees the situation is that the U.S. increasing its troop presence in the Middle East cannot be assessed as anything but a conscious course to provoke war. You decide. Was last week's tanker attacks a U.S. false flag or an actual Iranian attack? In the long run, it may not matter. War is coming. And now, let's take a look at the latest peace plan's plan. President Trump's special envoy Jason Greenblatt said last Sunday the political component to the plan for peace could be postponed until a new Israeli government is formed.
The expectation is that the next date for unrolling the plan would be around November 6th. In light of the turmoil in Israel's election and given that the Trump administration absolutely needs Netanyahu in place to make the proposed peace plan work, a delay makes sense. Greenblatt said, however, that the Bahrain peace conference will go ahead as planned. Elections with questionable and serious outcomes, wars, and peace plans for Israel is why the Jerusalem Report keeps watching every week. That's it for this Beast Watch News update. This is Kimberly Rogers Brown signing off. Click over to BeastWatchNews.com for full comprehensive coverage of all the headlines fulfilling end of days Bible prophecy.